Hello, I'm Rob Forsyth. Welcome to Liberalism in Question. In this half-hour podcast series from the Centre for Independent Studies, we explore questions and challenges to liberalism today. My guest today is Simon Cowan, who is the Research Director of the Centre for Independent Studies and, technically speaking, to clear an interest, my kind of boss. <laughs> yes, and, of course... Welcome, long, Simon. Long-time listener, first-time caller. <laughs> you, you wrote, you wrote um, earlier this year in, 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 a, in an op-ed for uh, some of the papers, quote, the unbelievable success of the international liberal movement by almost any measure you can name, is unparalleled in human history. And you went on to say, between 1990 and 2015, more than a billion people moved out of extreme poverty. And yet two paragraphs later, you say, yet we're on the verge of giving up many of the policies that underpin these gains, and many more liberal ideas in pursuit of some vague collectivist utopia. Why? It's a good question. I, I think... So there's a number of different reasons why the current liberal order or what in some places is actually probably the past liberal order is starting to, to fail. And it, it, it's under threat both from the left and the right in my sense. And, and I mean, I think at a, an initial point, the, the first observation I would make is that it's under threat because people are not aware of the exceptionalism of the past 30 or 40 years of human existence. So even if you were to say that, that a number of people are aware of that statistic about the fall in poverty, and I think most people would have no idea about that, mm -hmm. that is an achievement that is truly unparalleled. To lift that many people out of extreme poverty across the world in such a short period of time and, and not through uh, direct action on behalf of government, not through massive aid programs, although all of those things existed, but simply through the benefits of liberalising trade and enabling people to take more control of their own lives. And do you include China in that? Because China has been the you leader in the indeed. And, and one of the things that, that is most notable about Chinese history, and I'm not going to pretend to be a scholar on Chinese history, is that the, the course of the revolution changed markedly when China started to liberalise some of its, its policies, and particularly around trade and the, the entrance of China into global markets on a more substantive scale in the sort of 80s and 90s is, is one of the reasons why so many people in China were lifted out of what was extreme and abject poverty. And yet you're saying that one reason why you believe that liberalism is under threat is because of historical amnesia about its contribution. People don't understand and don't care to understand in large part what has led us to the place that we're in now. They care a lot more about, and I focus a lot more on, I think, the flaws in the existing system. And of course, you know, the way that we teach people about our history is is terrible, largely. I mean, we have a situation where one of the most destructive and extreme ideologies in human history took hold in the last hundred years. Communism killed more people than any other ideology, and it's not even close. Yet, 
a number of people on university campuses and elsewhere are openly Marxist. And it's not, you know, it's not an adoption of that, that body count as a, as a point of pride. It's just ignorance of what they mean by socialism or Marxism or communism. Have there not been failures or inadequacies in this remarkable period, which has since not, not just ideas, but in itself liberalism has created a context in which it's become easy to either forget or even more seriously from your point of view, to no longer believe in the value of a liberal society? Uh, to an extent, there's, there's some merit in that. Although, I mean, I think a lot of the things that are put down as failures of liberalism are, in effect, natural consequences of, of human interaction or, um, you know, byproducts of systems that are very positive. So, so there's a lot of focus, for example, on the accumulation of wealth at the top end, uh, which is, I mean, an issue that, that exercises a lot of people. But that's a byproduct of allowing people to pursue market opportunities. And the benefits of doing so far outweigh the costs that are associated with having some exceptionally wealthy people. I mean, if a billion people saw a massive increase in their income, which we know that they did, does it really, is that a failure because a handful of people saw a huge accumulation of wealth? Do you think international liberalisation did mean the loss, not of these people in poverty, but others, particularly in industrial societies, who found themselves competing and losing the competition with overseas workers? So that is a real issue, but it's important to tease our way through the specifics of this. Um, so one of the things that I found in my research in relation to um, that liberal transition in Australia, looking from, say, the Hawke and Keating liberalisation of the 80s through to Howard and Costello in the 90s, is that that was actually accompanied by, and in large part, I think, driven a widespread increase in income across society and at all different income levels. So in that period of, say, 1980 to about 2015, um, there was significant positive real income growth in every income quartile, every income decile, in fact. So it's not necessarily the case that liberal reforms lead to the stagnation of wages. Now, there's no question that it did so in the UK and in the US, but I think in large part, that is a, a confluence of a number of different factors that are not even necessarily connected to liberalism. And we can, and I'm happy to go through in detail why I think a lot of that stuff happened. Um, you know, that losers of globalization thesis is, a, is an important one to understand. But I don't think it's a necessary byproduct or a necessary product of liberal reform, and I think Australia proves that. Just to go back, you've actually been doing some research, which I think I the the, uh, the GFC, the, uh, not, not the GFC, the virus suddenly stopped because the world changed. It did. But research into Australian conditions and the effects of the Hawke, Keating, Costello, Howard reforms, and despite at the time, I remember many people very anxious that this would mean massive inequality, unemployment, you've actually shown by your research that you, you say everybody was better off. Is that what you say? Well, almost everyone was better off. 
um, there are some potential caveats to that, that. And there's a group of people who have sustained core disadvantage for, for a long period of time. But, but what we do know is that poorer communities are a lot better off now than they were then. And that, that is consistent across the country, in Australia at least. Um, one of the challenges that, that I think we see is how do we then sustain that income growth? Because if you look at the social problems that emerged in America in particular, and this is the work that Charles Murray put together, that, that the failure of the economy to deliver income increases for decades is a key factor in driving some of that social degradation, that, that social inequality that, that arose after that. So Murray in particular charts, uh, uh, you know, so falling marriage rates amongst uh, um, working class white people, he, he long-term unemployment, the, the opting out of labour markets, the, the, you know, the rise of single parent families, and that a lot of that is connected to this idea of being left behind. Australia doesn't have that same economic trajectory either because or at least or connected to the fact that we don't have widespread income stagnation for a long period of time. And I think one of the most important things that we need to make sure coming out of this pandemic is that we can get ourselves back to a point where we see widespread income growth, because if we don't, I would expect to see some of those social problems emerge in the future. This is Liberalism in Question. I'm Rob Forsyth, and my guest today is Simon Cowan. Simon, if if you're right, then the, the failure of liberalism is not its own weaknesses, though it does have them, but in people failing to understand its strengths. Whose failure is, is that? Well, I think it's a failure of liberals to advocate for their own positions. But I think it, it it's a... It's an issue that's developed over the course of decades, not over the course of years. And if we want to chart where this has happened, it's, it's useful to think about, you know, a spectrum of liberalism. There's a, a left liberal way of thinking. There's a, a right or classical liberal way of thinking. In both in the left and the right, that, that sort of liberal way of thinking sits in opposition to a more collectivist Way of just to interrupt, what, what, what's the essence of, liber of liberalism in your individual mind? It's individualism, really, is the essence of liberalism, both from the perspective of individual rights, but also importantly for classical liberals, individual responsibilities. But, and so that stands in opposition, I think, to you know, collective or progressive ideologies on the left that view everything through the lens of group identity. And, and I mean, I think almost everyone would agree that on the left, if you if you look from, say, the Clinton period or the Tony Blair period or the Hawke Keating years here in Australia, you see a very strong ethos of, of and focus on individual rights, on the ability of, of markets to lift up the circumstances of individuals. That then has been eclipsed in each of those countries by a more progressive group orientated mm. way of thinking. Even someone like Obama, who is on the record of opposing identity politics, is being eclipsed within the Democratic Party in America of, of this movement focused almost entirely on differences in group outcomes and the exploration of that through group identity. So the, the liberal movement in 
That's the left. What about the, the right? Has fallen, I think, as far as it, it can fall at this point. On the right, what we're seeing, and it's it's the emergence of Trump is is a really good sign of, of a deeper problem, I think, within um, right ideologies around liberalism, because we're seeing the loss of ordinary people from believing in that liberal order. So, you know, individuals have always been a little bit sceptical of the idea that markets and freedoms can actually generate widespread growth. I mean, it's economically quite clear, but it's not popular. It, well, it's, 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 I think one of the problems, if I'm not mistaken, is it's slightly counterintuitive that thought that if, uh, if that you do something and the outcome is good, even though that wasn't quite what was intended, is very contrary to the way human beings think about what works in the world. And as we become more technologically advanced and more sophisticated, ironically, we become even more convinced of the idea that we have absolute control of our circumstances and that we should exercise that control. So, so the rank and file... And we often meeting here the government, by the way, we, on our behalf, perhaps. In, indeed. So a lot of the rank and file on the right, who I think sort of came along with a lot of the views that, that were espoused by classical liberalism, even if they were probably more conservative, those people are looking at things like income stagnation, they're looking at some of the excesses of, of crony capitalism, of, of the really dirty deals being done between the top end of town politicians that seem to be trying to rig the game against the ordinary person. They see that as a failure of liberalism rather than a corruption of liberalism. And then we look at the the elite levels, the the more elite, or and particularly I think in the business community, the the top end of the business community that were once very solidly classical liberal, are trending enormously towards that more progressive ideology. They're shifting from the right to the left, and what that means, I think, from from the perspective of, of liberalism, is that liberalism is losing both its ground support and also its financial and, and political might. And, and that's a real problem, I think, for the supporters of the political liberal order. Is it a problem for everybody, really, not just for an ideology? If you're right that it's a society which encourages individual freedom is the most flourishing societies. And Australia went further down this path than almost any of these other countries we've talked about. Australia had a deeply closed economy where the, the mantra of the government was protection all round. We had you know, high minimum wage laws. We had very restrictive industrial relations provisions that entrenched the rights of unions and, and that sort of bargaining model. We had very high tariff barriers to stop competition. And we built into that whole model, the idea of a reasonable profit for business. And that that was the Australian way of doing it. It wasn't just one decades. side of politics. It, it, no, it was, it was no, absolutely. Across, across the, across the, uh, the aisle. Uh, for sure. And, and the end now, point now, of that was economic stagnation and now, decline. Why did those ideas, which were taken, I assume, in the 50s, during Menzies and then you know, other, other, other times. Blackjack McEwen, absolutely. Blackman, they were taken for granted as just being obvious, I assume. Then they fell out of favour very seriously. So the people like... Hawke, in particular, and Keating, followed by and, and Howard, could change. What what caused the ideas to change? And I'm asking the question because I'm wondering why the ideas have now changed about liberalism. But we'll start with that one first. <laughs> Absolutely. 
And there is an interesting parallel around the global financial crisis and now the coronavirus issue. So basically what happened in Australia in particular is that we got to the point where we could no longer sustain the model that we had operated on for so long. Inflation got out of control, unemployment got out of control, economic growth was stagnant, wages were stagnant. There's a period of time at the start of my study that, that basically where Australia goes from what is quite a well-functioning economy to a basket case within five or six years. It's, it's relatively quickly. Which years do you have? You know, this is sort of in the lead up to and the, the, the period immediately after the mid-70s. Right. So, you know, unemployment in, in 71 is, is below 2%. No one had anticipated or even <laughs> experienced a point in time, you know, in, in 30 years where unemployment rose significantly above 2% and stayed there. And then all of a sudden it did. And, you know, inflation, which had sat again in that 1% to 2 to 3% band for so long, went to 20%. And, and we had this wage-price spiral where, you know, the 20% inflation figures would be fed into wages, which had increased by 20%, which had feed back into prices. And this whole thing kept going round and round and round. And, and you know, the, the Whitlam government was destroyed by it. The Fraser government failed to manage it. Um, and we got to a point where Australia had a series of pretty bad recessions and, and something really had to change. And we see a similar, although slightly different, trajectory in the US and the UK. I mean, the UK in the 1970s was, was a proper disaster zone. They got bailed out by the IMF. Mm, mm, amazing. Um, in, I mean, li listeners may remember, if you're old enough, the famous speech that the comment of, of Paul Keating, I think it was to John Laws here in, here in Sydney, that uh, unless we act, we'll become a banana republic. Absolutely. So he tried to blow a whistle saying, disaster is heading our way. That caused a change against a lot of opposition, as I, as I remember it. Mm. A lot of intellectual, particularly within his party and his movement. And in the intellectual elites of this, uh, I remember reading people who frankly don't know, like myself, know very little about economics, nonetheless are pining on it. However, it turned out for good, and your, 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 your research has shown that. Mm. So my question is, has something gone wrong with the answer now that, it, it, that um, it's easier for, the, for, 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 for liberalism to no longer have that support? Something has gone wrong. Is it, was it the GFC? That is certainly it, didn't help. And one of the reasons why it didn't help is that there's been a conflation of the idea of markets and business. So, classic, so they had markets and business being conflated. So, yeah. what's so so classical liberals, which are in favour of markets because they are competitive, and because competition generates the best outcome for consumers, those people and that movement shifted to instead of supporting markets to being parties of business. And the thing about business is the best thing for business, especially big business is to entrench their position in regulation and have that symbiotic relationship with government. Yes, and, and all dressed up is in the public good, of absolutely. course. Absolutely. And, and so the parties that should have been for markets and then by extension for consumers became parties of business and therefore by extension of crony capitalism. I, I think that my own understanding that has a lot to do with that, a disillusionment with the big business, with yeah. corporation, and the, 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 um, the eluding, the elating of that with, well, what was then called neoliberalism. Yes. And it's, do you, is that a phrase you're happy to use, or is it? Well, I think neoliberalism is a made-up phrase for, it's, it's basically the boogeyman that hides under the bed. 
for everyone on the left of politics. Uh, you know, you've seen I've seen neoliberalism defined in, in every possible way and shape that you could define it. So uh, I'm very skeptical of that that idea in general. But but it's it's not just or the problems weren't just big business being in connection with government. It's also that, and this is particularly an issue I think that's relevant now, there is a belief that having good intentions is sufficient for good policy. And that uh, and Indigenous policy is a fantastic example of that in Australia. The, the thing is to be culturally sensitive and culturally aware and be doing things for the right reasons. And if you do that, it doesn't matter if it works. And that's exactly the opposite of how good liberal government should operate. In fact, I guess it's refusal to even ask whether it's working, perhaps would be well, a better not, way to put to it. To not want to know, because the only relevant question to be answered is, do you have the right mindset and intention? See, this is, I go back to the point I made earlier, this seems to me is the difficult thing about liberalism, is that you're saying that human flourishing and good order will occur not simply because people want it to happen, we'll come back to this in a moment, but through the unorganised but real interaction of people in a free society. Order. Spontaneous order. And it takes people like economists to tell us that, what, that this is what actually happens, even though it feels untrue intuitively. Mm. And in a lot of sense, I mean, it's not about things being perfect. There's an expectation when you start talking about political ideology in particular, that you can make things perfect, that if you just tinker with the settings enough, you can get to utopia. Liberalism is the opposite of that utopian vision yeah. in the sense that, in the same way, and in exactly the same con construct in which democracy is the opposite of utopianism, right? It's fundamentally about saying to individuals, we're gonna maximize your ability to make choices in connection to your life. We know that if you do that, sometimes you will make bad choices and sometimes there will be unintended negative consequences of those choices. Within our system, we are happy to accept those consequences and choices within reason because we know that enabling people to make those choices will result in the best outcome on aggregate or the best outcome that we can get to. So it's uh, what do we want? Slightly better living when we want it uh, as things muddle through. Absolutely. <laughs> because, and you know, I was, I was having a debate about superannuation because it's a fantastic example of this exact problem. Right. The idea that we should force people to save exclusively for their retirement at the expense of every other priority that they might have for their income because we know that they'd be better off having a better retirement. Personally, I'd, I'd far rather let people make those choices, even if we know that some people will end up reliant on their old age pension. I'm Rob Forsyth. This is a liberalism question, and my guest today is Simon Cohen, who's speaking with me about the strengths and yet difficulty of selling the, the strengths of the liberal order. Um, we have had the more serious challenge, and we're still in a serious challenge, actually, uh, of the COVID-19 epidemic. And this also is often being hailed as um, a proof that liberal governments don't, by liberal I'm not thinking of liberal big L, but mm. the liberal doesn't work. There was a need for government to step in, as there, as there is in wartime. Um, 
Does this disprove the value of liberalism? I don't think that it does. But I'm happy to acknowledge, and this is probably the difference between what you might describe as classical liberalism and, and a more libertarian viewpoint. And, and you know, I've, I've been involved in, in libertarian discussions about how you might abolish the police and the army and how you might create a country where there's literally no laws of any kind. And that's the kind of utopianism, I think, that we were talking about earlier. There is a potential role for government. The question is how does how do you constrain and how do you guide that role for government and have oversight within that system for individuals. One of the issues that I think is most apparent in the, the response to the coronavirus in Australia is that governments have at times sought to avoid any oversight in their decision making. They've sought to avoid explaining why they've made the decisions they've made. And I think that that is a significant negative in terms of the response. And we've you're, seen, you mean less transparency absolutely. is the concern? Because democracy relies to an extent on transparency, and that transparency is either provided by yes. strong public institutions, it's provided by, by the media, and, and as we see in America, the media has become a player in the political scene rather than a reporter on it. And that, that's a... That's a very dangerous thing. I'm just reading recently an article which talks about how the virus has killed the liberal order, slightly over the top. But nonetheless, the author was making the point that when we're under threat and fear, we revert to illiberal attitudes. I quote what he says, because wars and epidemics throw us back on our most basic hunter-gatherer instincts, we become more inward-looking, more tribal, more collectivist, more hierarchical. To put it another way, Major disruptions of this kind remind us of how unnatural the liberal order is, how, how fragile and contingent the individualism and prosperity of the last two centuries has been. Yes, you agree? To an extent, but also... Slightly apocalyptic, I know. Well, but uh, but it, also, <laughs> it also overstates the extent to which the response to coronavirus is entirely down to government action and how much of it is actually the free choice of individuals right. and, and companies to I think respond. I think this man's an American. But, but like, so how many centuries did human beings suffer from plagues? And, and plagues Sorry. were just, would sweep through nations, they'd kill 25% of the population, they'd disappear for 100 years and then they'd come back. Within 12 months, we have five now, six, effective vaccines being delivered across the globe. Now, there's no question that government played some role in that, but that is a triumph of the ingenuity of individuals that is inherent in a liberal market order. Yes. I was thinking liberalism as an ideology, as I, as I, as I grasp it, really grew up in European context, uh, in reaction to um, the, either the big failures or the overreaching, depending on your theory, of despotic and um, even, I guess, at hierarchical regimes. I'm trying to think both, mm. both the church and, the, and the, the crown and altar, I'm trying to think. Yes. And therefore, it, it had a clear foe to know, no, this is not the way forward, here's the way to order ourselves. Um, Today, liberalism doesn't have a clear, obvious opponent to object to, and therefore it's much harder for people to 
speak of it as an ideology, as a way of living that's worthwhile having. I think that's right. And I think... Should we wait for things to go bad and perhaps have another, have this conversation about, what, 30, 40 years' time and see how it's going? Well, liberalism was a progressive idea for a long time in the sense that liberalism existed in opposition to a conservative order. Um, And in large part now, to the extent that people self-identify as liberals, particularly classical liberals, they do so as an an adjunct or, or in a broad tent relationship with conservatism rather than in opposition to conservatism. But I think it's important to understand the how and why that liberalism is different to some of these ideas. So, and I think this is a fantastic example because of the work that you have done in relation to religious freedom. What is it about, say, religious institutions, for example, that that gives them worth within a conservative framework and in a classical liberal framework? Mm. Because my sense of it is those things are different. Conservatives value the institutions as institutions and that they have worth independent of the people who are who make up that institution whereas from a classical liberal perspective a lot of the value that comes from those institutions comes from individual conscience and the choice of free association between individuals and that supporting those things are the underpinnings of a liberal society. It's why I think religious freedom, for example, is one of the more important rights embedded in society because it's not just the freedom to be religious, it's the freedom not to be religious. And what we see with the rising ideologies on the the left in particular is there is no freedom not to be identified as a thing. If you are a particular race, you are first and foremost black your identity is filtered through that prism whether you want it to be or not and that's a i mean i think that's something that's worth standing in opposition to but it's not as clear an opposition to as once upon a time you would see with the divine right of kings that's right the (laughs) despotic government because the symbols of despotic government are everywhere whereas the the symbols of of that more group identity politics are a lot more diffuse although our time's rushing through and coming, you know, I want to raise the last minute, perhaps, the question of morality in liberalism. Often liberalism is understood to be a kind of amoral approach where it's uh, you don't specify what human goods are, you just let people do their own thing and that'll turn out well. But at another level, am, am I not right? And I think that Adam Smith thought, certainly thought this in his book, a Theory of Moral Sentiments. Do you think that there is a, a moral dimension or a moral necessity that liberals can flourish and that one of the problems is that when ethics or morality c- collapses or fades, liberalism itself is, comes under threat? I think that that's cer- there's certainly merit in that argument. And one of the things that I go backwards and forwards on, and I'm, I'm not going to pretend to have an answer to this, um, but someone once, uh, I, I read this somewhere, that if you have to write down your code of ethics, you've already lost. I... I, I ser- I, in my other job in the church, I've certainly felt that. And uh, I was just thinking that if you, one of the solutions to people behaving badly is more and more regulation. Yes. And, and it's a and, substitute and, and the poor one at that. To have a society where we say people can together with clear rules, clear laws, but be given freedom is one in where people need to learn how to behave well. So there is actually a danger of a moral, a moral narrowing mm. 
of society makes it harder for society to be generally liberal. That's true. Hollowing out, moral hollowing out. One of the challenges, I think, that faces 21st century liberalism um, is that it can no longer rely on a inherited this collective is, moral order. This was the point I'm coming to, yes. So, so once upon a time, you could simply rely on what is largely an inherited Christian. We all knew what a good person was, even that's, though we disagree about why that was the case. That's right. And, yes. and, and establishing that uh, common moral framework is, is an important step, I think, for 21st century liberalism. But I don't think that that's an impossibility. I think that, and, and Australia is a good example because Australians are, are terrible at addressing things from the perspective of ideology or bigger picture thinking. Yes, yes. But every person has this instinctive feeling of this is right or this is wrong. It's caught in the rather odd phrase, the pub test. Absolutely. And, and one of the things that, that I think we've seen, particularly in relation to the issue of, of sort of sexual assault and, and and exceedingly poor behaviour in relation to, to to women in in certain parts of, of of our country. That is as much a failure of common moral understanding as it is of, of it is. legal challenges, oh. and and that loss of the sense that something can be legally right but morally wrong, and and that's a function of at least in part of big government because. Government then wants to set all of the rules that says this is right, this is wrong. As long as you follow the regulations, you're going to be okay. Whereas I think a society that has its own moral code independent of the government rules or on top of the government rules is always going to flourish more than one that relies solely on the letter of the law. Simon Cohen, a last question. Um, optimistic or pessimistic? <laughs> It's, uh, you know, I go backwards and forwards on, on this issue. But ultimately, I think optimistic because there's enough evidence out there to suggest if we do this well, things are going to turn out okay. If we do things well. If we do things well, things are going to turn out okay. I think that qualifies as an optimistic thought. I guess in a way, those who embrace liberalism in some form, are basically optimistic, believing that uh, giving people freedom in the right context will lead to good. Mm. And uh, I, well, thank you very much. That's <laughs> my guest, my optimistic, my, as ever, moderately, moderately optimistic guest, uh, Simon Cohen here from the Centre for Independent Studies. This has been another podcast from the Centre for Independent Studies. For decades, the CIS has been an independent voice working to deliver evidence-based policy within a classical liberal framework. We rely solely on the generosity of people like you for donations to advance our cause. Head to cis.org.au to see how you can get involved. I'm Rob Forsyth. Thank you for listening. <laughs>